With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Wormtown Studios. How are you, Lance? I'm doing very well. How are you today? I'm doing great today. And uh, we have a conversation with the lovely Maggie Freeling of Oxygen's The Disappearance of Maura Murray to uh, bring to you in just a little bit. We will be talking about what we did up in New Hampshire a couple weeks ago when we uh, joined GB Geotechnics Ed and Graham, the GPR guys, and a few others, uh, including a cadaver dog up in the White Mountains area to do some investigating. And we know that Maggie is very busy. She has a very busy lifestyle, and she was not able to make it up there with us, and she regretted that. She really wanted to be there, but as schedules sometimes go, she wasn't able to do so, so we needed to 
give her the rundown about what happened, figured it would be a good time to simultaneously give the audience a rundown as well. Right, yeah, we, we hadn't talked to Maggie before this about it, so we recorded, and so that, that is the experience that you will be getting uh, in the second half of this episode. But the first half of this episode, Lance, we will be uh, sort of responding to the reaction from uh, the lovely community about the Curtis Murray episode. One of the episodes that has generated the most chatter and feedback, primarily positive and supportive of Kurt and us. And it's funny, actually funny, because the ones that aren't are almost insane. It really, it was the only time I looked at the the comments and actually thought, why are you writing this? Because sometimes, you know, you can write a comment about something that really you know, you could have an opinion that is very aggressively negative, but it blows my mind that anybody would consider writing something negative about anything that Curtis Murray said. Right. And so there were a lot of positive comments and we will get into those, but I think you kind of mentioned this one specifically. And let me just read that one. It came on YouTube and it's from uh, an asterisk. And it says, uh, if Mora was... Ooh, mo- back up one second. It's from <laughs> yeah. what? Yeah, you heard me. It's from uh, just an asterisk. It says, if Mora was my sister, the top three suspects on the suspect list would already have been knocked off and I would have an airtight alibi. That's incredible. So let's real quick break down yeah, what he's saying. Please. Here, or she. Mm-hmm. Asterisk is saying to take the top, the top three suspects in a disappearance case that doesn't have a body yet and then off them and make sure you have an airtight alibi, basically inviting Curtis Murray to create a kill list and execute it. Yeah, he says that's what he would do. That's what he would do. Sister went missing. Uh, yeah, he or she. Um, yeah, we don't know. Obviously, um, th- you know, that is sort of an aggressive reaction to this uh, episode sort of <laughs> and um not like uh most comments we got that was like this wonderful person who said that was amazing to listen to thank you curtis uh from samira on youtube um yeah the last thing that that interview with curtis should do is inspire violence that's why i'm th- th- it's just insane that's why i said it, i look at that and i'm laughing because it's it's just insane to write that. I mean, maybe the person uh, meant it in jest. I don't know, but uh, but not a, not really the most appropriate comment. Now, here's another one that came in on YouTube, and it said, "I, I don't think Maura Murray existed." From from Graham, uh, n- not Graham from GB Geotechnics, uh, but yeah, I mean, th- just kind of an unnecessary comment. And when we're not here to 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 chastise people who are commenting on YouTube. We're just trying to uh, talk about their reaction and how they run the gambit. Um, here's another one that was interesting. Brianna says, anyone search the dump that Tim worked at at the time? Also kind of a, an interesting reaction to the conversation because Curtis said he's he's fairly certain Tim had nothing to do with it. I mean, he kind of guaranteed it, um, personally anyway, and happened to mention in passing that Tim worked at a dump. You know, and but someone uh, recognized that and went went forward to ask a question about it. You know, I'll give an answer to that. That well, I would think that. Yeah, sure. I would think that uh, just with our relationship with Chuck West and the state police now, I would think that they've searched areas like that. It wouldn't surprise me if they if they did search that dump, but we don't know for sure. But we do know based on their work ethic that they've put in in the last few years, uh, last several years, um, that 
I would guess that they have. Uh, from Allie, she says, I hate this case. As I try to solve it, you realize that the Murray family is real and that they have to go through the real pain. We pretend we have a theory, but this poor family has to live through every theory. I'm sorry, Kurt. Just to follow up on that, similar comment from Dan. I appreciate him giving this interview. Gives me a bit of a different perspective on Mora and the rest of the family. He humanizes them, and that's something that we have been talking about, and I'm glad the people get that. Yeah. Sarah says, Kurt, I just want to say a massive thank you for letting us get some insight into your family life. We all want to find out what happened to Mora, and I hope your family will get closure one day. She will be found. That's nice. Yeah, that's very nice, and I want people to know that we didn't do this interview to exploit Curtis. He had been dealing with this for a while, and he had that moment by the tree, by the accident site, that he just broke down, and he realized that he had to pick up the torch and carry it for the family because he knows his dad's not going to be able to do it for, or Fred is not going to be able to do it forever. So he wanted to be more involved with this, and it is emotional for him now. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, honestly, that was emotional for, I think, every listener to hear that part, especially. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, in being here in person, like, uh, it was a different experience than hearing it because we can cut out all the pauses. But, Lance, uh, we said after the interview, like, we we never, we've never had that many pauses after, like, a, like a topic. Um, and then we kind of move on. And it's like, we just sat here in, like, silence, speechless for, like, 10 seconds and then we'd move on but we've literally never done an interview that went like that yeah it's because we've never had someone like him looking at us in the eye and telling us these these things that his family has approved him to say and just raw emotion on top of that and uh from kimberly she says this was an emotional episode thank you kurt for coming on and giving us more of a personal view of maura fred and all of you kids and your mom bless her heart uh, don't lose faith. She will be found and brought home. I can relate to Kathleen. I know firsthand what she went through with her fiance. Like Lance said, it's a ghost that you forever chase, no matter how old you are. And uh, she thanks us for uh, for doing this interview and uh, keeping more in the public eye. Well, thank you for the comment and for listening and and uh, being really responsible with your comment. That was, that was great. And I think the overall message that these positive comments have, I just read one here from Kim, and she ended, uh, we won't give up on Mora with an exclamation point. That's really the the overall theme of the comments that have come through is that uh, good for you, Kurt, for coming on and talking to us. And you know that we're still out here and we still support you and we won't give up on this. And from one of our dedicated followers and and friend, really, uh, Dan, sent an email, which was forwarded to Curtis so that he could see, you know, a real pure reaction that people have. Dan sort of has a, a voice for an entire community. A lot of what he says really is from a community standpoint in this case. He said he just took his glasses off because he can't stop sobbing over Curtis's incredible resilience and valuable perspective. And he thanks everybody who's who's involved with this and he just says that with full confidence this was the single most important interview ever done about Moore's case and it was a huge thing to say and even if even if he's he's complimenting us because he wants to know that it was it was a good interview or if he actually thinks that it was the most important interview done on Moore's case it's just it's important in the sense that we didn't talk about crazy speculations and theories it, we we went back to the the humanizing of the whole of of mora and the family right and i think that's what made it important yeah i think so um and the community really responded 
And uh, so we got a few other emails, not necessarily uh, regarding that uh, episode, but uh, we just wanted to touch on a few more of those. So we got one from Kevin. He says, why do I not hear more discussion or speculation on Butch and his wife? No one brings up the idea the wife was covering for him and or in on what he could have done. Captured her, held her against her will. The wife watched her while he went out and helped them search and he later moved on or disposed of her somewhere else sounds plausible a loved one in a rural area where some odd people may live that this could happen what's your response to this one uh i think it would be better if you put wild in front of speculation it does seem possible but that is wildly speculating and that's just not what we do that's why you don't hear it that's that's pretty much it i mean the the you know the chances that butch uh are are is completely clean here is is far outweighs the uh, the very small op, uh, odds I would give it that Butch uh, knows what happened to Mora or knew what happened to Mora before he passed or his wife knows what happened. Yeah, there are plenty of YouTube videos out there that cover theories and speculation on this, and that's something that a couple years ago you and I decided that we weren't going to do. So. But check out the episodes from three years ago because we were doing it then. <laughs> we might have speculated a, a, a little bit. Someone named Merlin emailed us, said, uh, fresh set of eyes. This case is way too interesting. Fantastical, dramatic, extreme. While truth is often stranger than fiction, everyday life and the majority of existence is disappointingly predictable. In addition to the local Cretans, who could be blamed for almost anything, New Hampshire also hosts wolves and bears. Wolves eat everything. Bones, too. It's not surprising no remains have been found. If I were a young woman with a half a buzz, I would leave the scene of that accident, uh, hide a little ways into the woods, wait for the flashing lights to go by, and unless you fall down an old well, there are a lot of them in New England, uh, you could climb up a tree. And the person kind of goes on a little bit and says there's nothing wrong with a little pontification. Just keep in mind that the world is a whole lot less mysterious than we give it credit for most of the time. And I think that is something that we can agree with. Agree 100%. On. Yeah, the, yep. you know, chances are this this mystery is a lot less mysterious than uh, some of the, the theories that we've talked about on this podcast or that the community has or something like that. Chances are it's very simple, right? Absolutely, and we do appreciate emails like this. This person says here, I do enjoy a good yarn. There's nothing wrong with a little pontification and that's or pontificating. That and that's cool because sometimes we can go through something like this and and say, you know what, we we never considered wolves. We never considered this, we never considered this, and we look into it and we figure out how it may or may not be the case. You know, in the case of wolves or bears, bears especially, they're hibernating, so you can probably check that off the list. And then you go back to, you know, whether or not there was footprints going into the woods and no clothes. I mean, I know wolves apparently eat bones too, but do they eat backpacks and alcohol bottles too? You know, there's nothing there. Yeah. But it does cause you to go back and keep things fresh and reevaluate stuff. So keep those emails coming. Just, you know, don't make them violent about going out and killing everybody that's a uh, <laughs> that's on your suspect list. Yeah. From Pam, she says, I have a far-fetched idea. Would it be possible at all, after all these years, to take a scent dog to different areas of interest, smell something of Mara's that hasn't been washed, and see if there's a scent? If her backpack phone is somewhere, could it still have a scent on it? Would the car still have her scent? Could these things have been kept as a trophy and be found by scent dogs is where she's going with it. Sure, that's sort of what we're doing now. Yeah. We really are. We took cadaver dogs there. We brought GPR, the ground-penetrating radar, to see if there was anything like a backpack or clothing or a cell phone. 
And uh, Pam goes on to say, lastly, I have listened in the past few weeks and I often have the creepiest thought that the killer uh, most likely has listened to every single word of your podcasts. The image of him nodding yes or shaking his head no at the different avenues that were explored is terrifying and infuriating at the same time. And uh, I think that's an interesting point. And I don't, well, obviously we have no idea if that's true. We obviously don't even know if Maura was killed. Um, I agree with Pam on this, that the thought of someone who might be responsible for something here is listening. And that is the power of the community and the listening audience and what we're doing with this. If they hear that every other week or once a month or whenever, but it's consistent that there are groups going up there and searching and digging, don't go digging recklessly, but you know what I'm talking about. If there's activity surrounding this case, they know that there's always a buzz. They might just go and screw up. They might have tried to hide something that now they need to recover. There are people watching people all over the place up there. There's law enforcement watching people, listening to the show, reporting, and watching. And it just has to keep going. But if if someone out there who knows something is listening, we would uh, implore them to please contact the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. But also, if they'd like to send us something, email us something, uh, they, they know they can trust us. And if you have something to send to us uh, physically, you can send it to our P.O. Box. And something new, Tim, for Missing Maura Murray and Crawl Space, we have a post office box. We have a mailing address that you can officially mail us letters, um, fan mail mostly. So I got a giant P.O. box when I went down to the post office, um, the biggest one they had for all the fan mail. Okay. Yep. So anyone who wants to send us correspondence, you can send that to 22 Front Street, P.O. Box 230, Worcester, Massachusetts, 01614. And you can address that to Crawl Space Media or Missing More Murray or our names. Okay, this one's from Pessy. She says, uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast, started listening about two months ago, and I'm currently watching The Oxygen Show. She says, in Chris Peake's article, which I have uh, pasted below, uh, he writes that Cecil Smith was driving sedan 002 and that Butch Atwood and Faith Westman emphatically state that the car was a sedan and not an SUV. I know Cecil says he was in SUV 001, but is it possible he is mistaken? Uh, also, it is possible that he indeed was in SUV 001, but that the 002 sedan that Faith and Butch Atwood saw was the first on the scene before. Uh, so could you respond to this? And so the interesting thing about this is Chris Peake is actually an old friend of mine. And uh, so I, uh, you know, we went to high school together and he wrote this article because we started the started the podcast and he really liked it. And so he kind of got involved a little bit. Um, so I can definitely say that there's no like conspiracy with Chris Peak or anything like that. Um, he wrote the article before the oxygen show and before Cecil and the state's official response was that Cecil was in zero zero one. So I think when Chris wrote that Cecil was in zero zero two, I don't remember it necessarily being emphatically stated by butcher or faith, but, um, when he wrote that, you know, that was not with the information that the state uh, had given the public that Cecil was first to arrive in the SUV 001. And I've met Chris, and he's not a 
at all someone who would put something out there to incite any sort of confusion or an agenda. It's it was it was just like you said, it was a, a lack of information and or bad information at the time. Yeah, it was in the information out at the time. And actually, uh, we had Chris on the on the podcast in an episode called Examining Original Articles. And uh, we kind of talk about exactly this a lot. We talk about how journalists uh, can get things wrong and how time can change facts and make it look like something's a lot more suspicious than it really is. So actually, it's like perfect full circle from that episode with this email. And we have an interesting question slash observation from Lauren. She has this rag in the tailpipe theory that has been stuck with her for a little while and basically says Fred had told Maura to put the rag in the tailpipe if uh, you needed to prevent the car from smoking. And he said, you know, if you're driving around campus or whatever, you see like a campus police, you know, put the rag in the tailpipe and it wasn't good advice to give, but it was, you know, enough to get you past, say, a, a, a police officer. So Lauren says, if that's true, wouldn't the reason for her putting the rag in, in her tailpipe be because she saw a cop and was trying to avoid being pulled over? Uh, I'm not certain about the that, uh, but I think we can say that probably wasn't the case if you're considering the time and night that she was driving it was dark i don't know where she would have seen a police officer on that road unless they were maybe coming out from another road and i don't know how that police officer would see her car smoking to such a point well i think it's too late and it's also too late that i think is the is the main point like uh, if if she was driving got off the highway and the car was smoking and she saw a cop then like that would be the moment where the cop was going to pull her over um, you know, not a second sighting with a cop that she would probably be concerned with. Uh, but who knows, really? Right. You also have to consider how long the rag would stay in the tailpipe if she's driving before it just pops out. Yeah. So it would have to be pretty close to the crash site. So it would have to happen around, say, the Swiftwater way station. Yeah, or the beginning of 112. So it's it's a really, I, I like where Lauren's head's going. I love reading these uh, theories and these, uh, you know, sort of reasonings that that people are coming up with uh i think one one of the rag in the tailpipe theories that that we like is that the flurry of activity that faith saw was more getting the the rag putting it in her tailpipe because she thought maybe her car could get over the the snow embankment and give it a little more power a little more sort of oomph to get it over and as always i would like to reiterate the fact that I know, we know, that this case arouses a lot of curiosity and people want to go up there. They want to take pictures. They want to research as much as possible, especially in the area. Please be respectful to that community and to the people who own those homes that is out there publicly now that we've searched. There's nothing that you're going to see there by just driving by and taking pictures that hasn't been seen or a picture hasn't been taken of in the past 14 and a half years. Also, we just wanted to give a big thanks to the people who own those homes and a big thanks to the community for allowing us to go up there and do that. And Bob, if you're listening, next time we're in the area, we will take you up on the offer to have your wife cook us a wonderful dinner. Okay, here's another email from Courtney. I have followed this story from the beginning and also the podcast. Today I tuned into the documentary on Amazon. I can't help but be extremely bothered by the comments regarding the nature of Mora and Fred's relationship. I do not understand why the... There are comments stating that it's weird that they shared a tent while hiking or a motel room. I'm a year younger than Mora and connect with her immensely um, because she seemed close with her father. 
Then she goes on to say, when I saw the disappeared episode, it broke my heart thinking of my dad going through that if he lost my sister or me. So that really, you know, resonates with people who have, uh, you know, a similar family situation. Yep, and she says there was no, there's nothing weird about it, and she says there's nothing weird about her and her dad's uh, experiences, and they they hung out in New Hampshire as well. Uh, when you have a close relationship, that that is what it is, and it's not weird. It is the way you present it, though, the way you word it, and say that just doesn't sit well. You say that they're you know, camping together and they're in the same tent, and then you just let that hang, and you let the listener put together their own conclusions. So. It's good to know that we have people out there who are watching and listening, and they're they're able to think for themselves with that. Yeah, and so this was in Finding Maura Murray in uh, one of the episodes, probably episode one. She's referring to, and I, you know, I think the point of these episodes, Lance, isn't so much to display the facts about the case as we as we've talked about. If you want like straight facts about the case, the Oxygen Show, the disappearance of Maura Murray, is really the place to go if you want to see the visual of that. If you want to hear stories about people who are obsessed with the case, that's why you come to Amazon Prime to check out Finding Maura Murray, because that's mainly the focus of our docuseries. And that's really what this whole case is about. There's many facets to it, but two of the biggest are the case itself and the details of the investigation and the community that is involved in this that is very passionate about getting answers, whether it's... uh, responsible or not but those are the two like main things that drive this story so what we're showing in finding more murray kind of runs the gambit it kind of shows the entire spectrum of obsession into uh more murray's disappearance and us as characters in the beginning are really just at the beginning of our spectrum and as we're working on the future episodes and we're going through all the footage really that that terminology of spectrum is super apparent when we're looking when we're watching this back with fresh eyes because you see how we started on one end of the spectrum and now we're at a a, a more investigative or informational uh, like delivery system of the spectrum where we, we collected all of this stuff and now we're disseminating it. We might have believed more suspicious things about people like that at different times during the documentary. I think that's kind of why it's in there. It's not because we think it's true now. It's because, well, we might have believed it then. Maybe a lot of people did. And now it's not true. If if you're following the, the case, you know it's not true now. And it's really therapeutic in a way to watch how we've gone through all of this and started one way and come out the other side. Because while we didn't 100% believe certain theories we we definitely considered everything and we were open to everything and to just watch how the podcast and the community involvement and all the feedback including with the family and with law enforcement to see how that all formulated or molded what we're doing today is is really reassuring to me from ian why are you not discussing a the possibility of mora dying in an overdose uh, with friends around and then they panicked and never talked about it or b the possibility that she's a jane doe death in another state i gotta say ian i do appreciate the uh use of a b c i I love bullet points and and categorized emails like that uh the second one, B, the possibility that she's a Jane Doe death in another state. We've actually discussed whether or not, you know, we don't really discuss that too intensely on the show, but internally, and especially with Maggie. Maggie has these statistics, Maggie Freeling from The Disappearance of Maura Murray. She's a, a very big advocate of 
the Jane Doe's and the unnamed uh, victims that are in the databases. So we do have statistics on that, and we do consider that very yeah, much. Yeah, and there are people who check that, um, and we, I think we check into Doe's in Vermont especially, um, you know, periodically, and I know other people in the community do as well because Vermont was, I don't know how many miles, but very close to where Mora went wi- missing. Yeah. The first one, A, the possibility of Mora dying of an overdose and the friend she was with panicked and hit the body. If you start discussing that, then you just run the risk of discussing all sorts of possibilities and wasting a lot of time. Yeah, I like to call that one the uh, the I know what you did last summer corollary because it actually comes up in a lot of missing persons cases. You hear yeah. rumors about that. Yeah, uh, we've heard it in Brianna Maitland. I've heard it uh, about Molly Bish, who was very yeah. young, and it's just hard to even believe that that could be possible. Yep. But but these are rumors and and things that are spoken about, and I think it's honestly because people have a hard time believing that there could be a monster in their midst. That's very true. One thing that we try not to do here is take up episode time discussing theories that really don't have any connective tissue as well. And there's no real connection between Mora partying with a group of people and and overdosing and dying and having those people dispose of her body. I mean, that's introducing at the very least one other person at at the most who who knows right a dozen people and that's a lot of people that can form together for a conspiracy to cover up a murder yeah that's that's a very difficult thing to keep quiet it's a lot it's definitely um something we've talked about over the years something we've heard uh, a lot of people mentioned in in these party scenarios so if you know something about a party like this that did exist please email us at missingmoremurray at gmail.com because if there's some truth to that we'd love to hear it but to our knowledge, we found no evidence to support that. Welcome back to Missing Mora Murray, Maggie Freeling. How are you today, Maggie? I'm awesome. How are you guys? We're doing pretty well. We wanted to have you on again and go over our weekend up in New Hampshire where we sent uh, some cadaver dogs around certain properties and you were unable to make it. So we wanted to have a public debrief with you on what our findings were. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I, you know, we were texting a little bit this weekend, but I don't know much. So update me. So the first thing that we did was uh, I had I headed up there on Friday to meet with Ed and Graham from GB Geotechnics and to check into the Airbnb that we rented. Met up with those two guys and we talked that night about what we were planning on doing with their GPR technology uh, for the next day. Okay. Followed by a terrifying story from Ed. <laughs> Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian Mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s. Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. 
So then on Saturday morning, we met up over at Rick's old place. Rick Forcier's. Guy right on the corner there. One of the closest houses to where Mora went missing. And that morning, we actually got an email from the person who had connected us with the dog handler. Uh, and he had said that there were people from the Boots on the Ground community that had employed the dog handler to search some properties and some areas for them. So the dog handler felt like she was being pulled in a few different directions and no it, pun intended, no pun intended. And it, 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 it seemed like we might not have dogs for that day, but our guy, Travis, who had been connecting us with Deb worked out the entire arrangement. And we spoke with Barbara from the boots on the ground community. That's right. And we came together and basically said, we're all doing the same thing here. There's no reason to monopolize the dog. Yeah, and there was some kind of miscommunication between uh, all the channels, I think, involved. And so Deb had sort of been double booked, I guess, in in some sort of way, because we were under the impression when we were heading up there that we had the dog. And we didn't even actually know about the Boots on the Ground uh, search group being up there the same weekend until earlier that week. We started hearing some rumblings about dogs, and then we found out that morning that it was like, oh, well, now all of a sudden we don't even know if we're going to get dogs to use on Rick's old place or the A-frame. And uh, so that was a a bit of a tense moment, but then uh, we worked it out, and and we met on the property up there and just talked it out, and it wasn't a big deal at all. It was actually lovely working with like-minded people. Yeah, and it really goes to show what happens when communication just takes place good right. communication takes place and there's no need to feel like you know you're you're an army of one trying to do something everybody's in it together and i think barbara said something like that she said all for the greater cause or something and, yeah and really that's that's true and uh maggie we're talking about deb from the oxygen show so you're you're yeah you're familiar yeah, with deb her. is great um did she have the dogs that were on the show or was it different dogs she had eisen 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 yeah eisen was great yeah, great dog. Really impressive. Uh, so the first thing we saw with the dog uh, was at the A-frame. So we split up and tried to make the best of our time and utilize as much time and, as, as possible. And the, the dogs first went to the A-frame. And what did you went with them and what did you see there? Yeah, we even have some GoPro footage of it. And uh, so I kind of followed Deb with Deb and Eisen, the dog, uh, with the GoPro into the woods surrounding the entire property and then into the house. And uh, we were under the impression that the dog would stop if there was some kind of smell of decomposition, uh, decomposing humans, to be more specific, or human. And the dog had a lot of bells around its uh, neck tied to it. Around like its collar? Yeah, kind of yeah. like, like a Santa Claus on a sleigh or something like that. So you know, you can you can actually tell by looking at the dog or listening whether there's a hit or not. Right, because when there's a hit for the uh, decomposing biomatter, it, the there dog be, sits down. Yeah, there would be moving. no bells. Yep. And, right, that's what happened in, um, in the show when the dog found the placenta we buried. Right. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so then we went inside the A-frame house, and uh, the dog Eisen walked all three floors of the property, not being interested in any single part of the entire property. Had no interest. That was pretty much Deb's words, right? The door to the downstairs closet was opened, 
And Eisen stuck his or her nose, a little snout right in there and just kept moving on. And even I was a little taken aback at the moment. It was like, oh, well, maybe we should check this out further. And Deb asked before we started, by the way, she was like, I don't want to know anything. I know nothing about anything in this house. So don't tell me anything about what areas or whatnot. Sorry, I'm confused. This is the A-frame? Yes. But I almost stopped her at that moment to say, oh, maybe we should have Eisen sniff a little bit more in here. But I realized that if the dog had no interest at all, there was no chance of decomposing human in that closet at any point. It's such a small area. If he stuck his nose in and didn't smell anything, then there wasn't anything there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he needs, like, a deep scent necessarily. Uh, it was my understanding anyway. Right. So we'll, we'll we'll go over what happened, and then we'll go over some of the updates as well. Sure. So, uh, you know, the update of the, of the closet just based on the phone conversation that we had this morning with a member of law enforcement. Oh, that's right, yeah. In the meantime... We're over at the uh, at four years old home, and we're sending the fiber optic camera on a cable down into the well, which isn't really a well in the sense of a you know old turn of the century type or turn of the nineteen hundreds type well, where the bucket comes up. It's it's about an eight inch in diameter iron pipe that drops down to at least a hundred and thirty five feet. We got we got it we got the camera down to about 130 feet, but there was a bunch of sediment at the bottom, and uh, and we watched the uh, footage the entire way down, and we have video of that footage as well. That's right. So okay, a camera. What camera was sent down there? It was a camera that was uh, attached to a, a long cable on a spool on a on a giant spool that you could spin, and it was the same type of camera that you can send into a wall. Yeah. Uh, probably about the, the diameter of maybe um, like a Sharpie. Okay. and With uh, a light on the end. Wow. Okay. And so the footage was pretty good and you were watching that live on, an, on a laptop? Yeah. Right. And it, it, was, uh, it was recorded at the same time, but we were watching it live and it was going down into the depths of this tube, this yeah. iron tube pipe. Yeah. Pipe. Big all, pipe. yeah. All the way, all the way down. 130 something feet uh, a bunch of sediment all around it we thought for a little bit if we let the sediment settle mm-hmm. then we could see better but that ended up just settling around the camera we mm-hmm. couldn't see anything so actually the more you moved it around the better it was oh interesting uh we found nothing down there uh and there was there was plenty of little connections that have like sort of an x brace that we had to get slip the camera through right, right. so if anything was dropped down there it would have caught up on on one of those braces. Right. So it would have been caught up earlier and you probably would have seen it as yeah, you passed it. As it passed with the camera. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So chances someone drops something down, something, you know, bigger than a, a quarter down there is, is pretty much zero. I'd Yeah. If you're talking something like a cell phone being dropped down there, it would have caught up on one of those braces. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and then we then we started digging up the uh, lawn, looking at that anomalous area uh, from the summer that we found. That's right. Um, and But before that, we actually had to put a, a halt to that digging because uh, we were asked by Deb and Travis to kind of let the other property sit uh, for as long as we could to where there there's this, you know few amount of footsteps, uh, trust, you know, people walking on the grass on the property uh, so the dog can kind of get a clearer scent if possible. So we, we came back and kind of we, we stopped the digging um, and then we were kind of down for like an hour or a half an hour waiting and uh, the dog came back with Deb and what happened? Came back and searched the inside of the house 
which we had done some of the handheld GPR on the ground to yeah. identify the hollow spot that uh, AJ and Mina had discovered. And they didn't find anything with the GPR that was unusual. Looks like the, the tiling was on top of uh, cement, which was on top of uh, sort of a, like, a, like a lumber uh, grid. So it makes sense that you'd probably have some some hollow sounds there. Okay. Interesting. Thankfully, thankfully, because to rip that up would be a disruption of their entire lives for who knows how long. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm sure they're so happy that there's nothing at their house. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing inside the house. Uh, The dog went through, didn't sit down anywhere, went through pretty quickly, came outside, went around the property and... Deb came back up to us and said that she, for the most part, will clear this property. But she said the dog was busy, busy, busy all around the property and then went to the side of the house back where the three sheds or shanties are. And Mm -hmm. right next to the house, pretty much right adjacent to the house, there's a small mound of, of earth and she said that it was the only time that she had seen him uh, behave differently. And she said, again, huh. it's not, it wasn't a significant change in behavior. And she wasn't trying to be an alarmist or raise any flags. She just said, as, as long as you have the GPR, I would stop doing the GPR over there. And I'd have them run the GPR over here because it's the only area where he was interested in something. And that could be runoff from a leech field or... Uh, you know, maybe they, uh, Mina had said that further back in the woods, they, they throw like chicken bones from rotisserie chickens and stuff. So maybe it was something like that, but it was the only change in behavior. I think they're only, they're trained really to react on human uh Human, right. So I don't think it would be chicken bones. Decomp, yeah. Right. So, but, but the, this wasn't like known, you know, and, and it was actually kind of made really apparent that it wasn't like an official hit. Like, don't call this a hit. She went out of her out of her way to say that the Eisen did not have a hit. It was just right. A, it was just a weird behavior, a slight change in behavior. Right. She didn't even. She wouldn't even go so far as to say unusual. She just said, "Okay, it was a, it was the only time he'd behaved differently," and it, and even that was probably something that only she could recognize his change in and behavior. And so and so the spot that we had identified, did he go near that? And like nothing. Oh, nothing. Nothing. Uh, and we did take the GPR over to the spot where he acted a little differently. And they said that it looked all normal. It was all normal earth for the most part. But it was sort of so uneven that they couldn't get a distinct reading. So we will follow up with the state police and see if they have time to get their dogs over there as well at some point. To rule it out. Yeah. So did you guys dig in the spot that we found? Uh, we didn't dig. Graham Doug. The Soil Whisperer Doug. The Soil Whisperer Doug. Right. And Doug. And Doug. And Doug. Yeah, he dug uh, quite quite an impressive hole. About three feet at the max. Yeah. And um, we learned that the anomaly that that read from the ground penetrating radar was mostly a collection of large boulders. Yeah. Mm. But the question still was like, you know, why are all these boulders kind of grouped up right here? And so it was like, well, maybe there's something underneath the boulders because it still kind of seemed like someone went in from the top. So something could have been put down there and then boulders thrown on top of it and then the dirt piled on uh, even more. Um, and But we did that. 
uh, Graham and Ed, they, they dug to the bottom of that boulder uh, formation, and uh, that was it. Pulled up some of the boulders and didn't see anything underneath. As a matter of fact, aside from the boulder part, Graham said that you couldn't fake the earth to look more normal. <laughs> so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the digging. tried to do is we tried to uh, kind of dig on the edges of the anomaly um, that way we could try and catch uh, a, a boundary in the soil um, and that would be you know clearly indicative of, of something that that had been dug uh, we really didn't see that as we were going sometimes uh, you know you just miss it we're digging pretty pretty aggressively um, but as, as we're traveling down, we're seeing still nice, clean, un, undamaged layers. Uh, all the way down, we're two and a half, almost three feet deep uh, over here. Once we kind of clear the rest of this out, that'll be almost four feet deep, which is, um, I think, below, below anything that uh, we could really see that we thought was interesting. Uh, once you get all the way down here, then you, then you reach kind of a not not actually like pea gravel that you would find in a in a like a playground but um just really really small kind of fine rock um uh the soil is it's really uh nicely marbled um and what that means is that it's uh it's it's naturally occurring there's um gpr just kind of showed us the anomaly and that anomaly turned out to just be kind of uh, uh, a lot of a lot of rocks scattering uh, the signal so that's that's mystery solved and it was kind of a an interesting feeling not not one that we had had before uh, in going up there and doing like this uh, boots on the ground uh, so to speak kind of work this is the first time we didn't create any actionable leads afterwards. So it, it's kind of like a, a little bit of a back to the drawing board moment. And so the property that Fred identified for me, we have, you know, this weekend you guys weren't able to go there. Are we making plans in the future? Yes, we weren't able to go to this other property because it's still unclear whether or not it's private property or public property or maybe some property that hunters lease out so that they can they can hunt on it. The closest house there, we have the contact information, just the name of the owner of the closest house, but uh, pretty tough to get in, in, in touch with if you're not knocking on the door and, and their home. So uh, it just didn't feel right. It, Deb was very adamant, rightfully so, about going onto properties that didn't have strict permission. But that was the only property that we couldn't get the, we just couldn't get the permission on in time. And not for lack of trying. It's just really hard to find who owns a random plot of land. Yeah. Right. And what about um, Curtis? Did he come up to do that other place? Yeah. Curtis came up to do the other place uh, on the Haverhill bath line. His flight ended up being delayed to the point where he didn't come up until later on that night. Uh, so that location was done the next day, but even the next day, his GPS 
device in his car malfunctioned and sent him like an hour and a half in the wrong direction before he realized oh, he was going no. in the wrong direction. So uh, so we did end up going over there and running the dogs around and the dog found nothing as well, which was really impressive because we know for a fact, speaking with the selectmen over there and with law enforcement, that there was a fire there and a couple of dogs perished in the fire and Eisen is trained to differentiate between a deceased dog and a human being and didn't even hit on the dog. Mm -hmm. Right. But nothing was found there. And then uh, the next day, Ed and Graham went back with their GPR to that location, ran over it, found nothing but a giant root, dug in a couple of spots and, and found nothing. So thorough. Like, it's yeah. just, it's so crazy. I mean, we've gone up there so many times. We've brought GPRs and dogs and Doug. And I mean, it makes me feel good that there's really nothing at these properties. Yeah. And it makes the homeowners feel pretty good. Yeah. Here's one thing that I will put out there that we just learned about the dogs. If anybody plans on going up there and digging because you think that there's something in a location, it's much better to get the dogs there first because if you dig, and I love this this little detail, if you dig, then it disrupts the the decomposition, the odor of the decomposition below the surface. And if you dig, that, that suddenly dissipates into the air and you need to wait months for that to reconcentrate again for the dogs to get a scent. So if you dig and let's say you're right, you're, you're somewhat accurate and you're close, but you don't find anything, you've ruined the scent for months. So a, a dog could go up there a week later and find nothing. Right. That's interesting. I, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely never never thought about that, never even knew that, but the visual there actually works in my head, so I get that. Sure, and besides that, I mean, digging, assuming there was human elements, I mean, you're totally disrupting a, a crime scene and disturbing anything that might be there. Yeah, if you do have plans to go up there and do something like that, contact us, contact the police. They're not they're not not open to these things. Now the last thing that we we did or I should say kind of tried to do uh was on Sunday at the A-frame and uh we tried to to use some luminol uh as we heard Mike the old owner describe when uh when he sprayed luminol in the downstairs closet it pulled up and uh, lit up like a Christmas tree. And so uh, we had we didn't have so much luck, uh, I think, just with the product, probably being the only time we ever attempted such a thing. But the good news is that we heard from, through our friend Travis, we heard uh, from someone in law enforcement currently who kind of gave us some tips on doing luminol, uh, doing a luminol test and, and may even accompany us uh, if we try to do this again. Um, but also, probably the most interesting thing that uh, this, this person said and that we, we've learned about this closet and luminol is that uh, bleach will give you a, a false positive. Not to mm. mention, not to mention some herbs. Yes, uh, horseradish, uh, rosemary, thyme. What about marijuana? Yep, I like where your head's at, Maggie. But yes, well, that definitely looks like a grow closet. That's what we all thought when we looked at the closet. Yep, and we specifically asked this member of law enforcement as he was telling us the things that would give a false positive. We said. You know, everyone looked at this closet and here's what it looks like. And we described it and we said that it sort of looked like a grow closet to us. Would marijuana be uh, 
you know, would affect the the test and would that give a false positive? And we barely said that. And he started saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, not not only the marijuana, but maybe some of the um, some of the chemicals they use or like the pesticides that they would use on it or, or the fertilizer or whatever, like the, the products they would use to help it grow would give a false positive. And just to reiterate, in this really dark closet, um, th- that is cocked, like uh, like the edges in between the stairs yeah, that run over it. Everywhere, every corner is cocked in there, and it has a light bulb about waist high when you walk in, uh, and that is the only light bulb in the closet. Uh, so, so it's a light bulb fixture on the wall about waist high, and then a like a padlock latch lock on mm-hmm. the outside. It also had a crucifix. It did. It did. Well, you know, Jesus, and it said. Uh, it said private but jesus liked uh 420 i mean outside of the disappearance of maura murray if you looked at that closet at in that location in new hampshire and uh, you'd look at it and the first thing you'd say is oh it's cocked from the inside <laughs> it's locked from the outside there's a access to a light bulb here it just looks like a grow closet yeah it totally looked like a grow closet totally so it would seem that the closet in the A-frame house is officially ruled out as far as this, uh, you know, amateur investigation goes. Um, but I do think we are going to try to do a luminol um, test up there at some point and uh, just, you know, see see what happens. We pretty much figured out that we were not luminol experts. Uh, that's that, I'll take, I'll fall on the sword there. I bought the luminol. Just turned out to be something that you'd show your eighth grade science class that you put this powder in water and it lights up blue. That was super embarrassing too. We were we were there and we were like, well maybe if we let it die down and then spray. And then we wanted to run a uh we wanted to run a control test and our camera guy Joshua F. Leonard said, Oh, I have this cut on my hand and he starts gouging at his own hand with a key to try to get blood and he did. So we wiped some of his own blood. So Josh has given blood, sweat and tears to this project. Yeah. On a piece of paper. It was, and then we sprayed the piece of paper and we just wanted to see if that glowed more than the, uh, the floor glowed. So it was just a mess. Um, so we are not lumen. No, Luminati's. Um, yeah. We are luminat experts. Luminat. <laughs> but, uh, but try again. We will. So you guys tried the luminol on your own, like not with an expert. You guys just like bought luminol. That that's correct. We actually bought luminol that would be good for uh, like if we were gonna uh, change the the A frame into like a rave for a night. Right. Right. Okay. Right. 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 So I saw luminol work. I don't think we had it in the show because it was hard to capture on camera. But um, I saw it work in the show, and it worked. If done correctly, I'm sure it works great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the same guy who did the blood testing, he came and showed us how luminol works and turned off the lights, and it was like exactly what you see in forensic files. It was like, oh my God, here is this gigantic stain. Hmm. But again, luminol, you know, I think people always get this wrong that it's blood. I mean, it's not going to just react on blood. So yeah, like you, like I think what we did with like someone spit on a towel and we sprayed the luminol, you know, like I think it was like that. But yeah, so, I mean, that's so interesting that marijuana plants would cause luminol to light up. Did you get the science behind that? Like, why? I think just the chemicals in it. I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know if he really knew. He just knew from his experience that it would happen. So, yeah, the the whole kind of weekend sort of left us with a feeling like, uh, kind of like an anxious feeling, but almost like, like that we lost like a round in a boxing match. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like back to the drawing board. Uh, you know, where can we go from here? 
Well, I still, you know, I, I absolutely want to see if we can get in touch with the people of that property Fred showed us. I mean, that to me seemed really promising. I mean, it's somewhere that, you know, a specific person hunted at. It's a vast property. It was never actually searched um, because from what we know, you know, the dogs um, searched somewhat nearby, but didn't actually go that way. Yeah. So that's of interest to me. I want to uh, make a clarification here. We were alerted to a message that was posted on one of the uh, one of Maura Murray's Facebook groups. And someone, I, I don't know if it was a, a spy. I'm not sure how this happened, but someone pinpointed a lot of uh, details that happened while we were there. I just want to clarify this person's uh, this this post. Yeah. This person says that Chuck West. Well, first of all, the person says that he can confirm that uh, Tim and myself were at the A-frame. We were. Uh, we were also at Rick Forsey's old place. Uh, and then he goes on to say Chuck West was with them for part of the trip. That's not true. Nope. Chuck West was not there for part of the trip. And then he goes on to say that the, uh, the, the search dog in quotations, which uh, I don't know why they put the search dog in quotations. This was a legit cadaver dog. Yeah. Search in quotations is, is weird. It was, a, it was a trained cadaver dog. This was not a hit. Uh, it says uh, a possible hit in Forcier's backyard right behind the house near a mound of dirt. Not not accurate. It was the side of the house. It wasn't a mound of dirt. It was sort of, uh, sort. Of, I mean, I guess you could call it a mound, but, uh, but, you it, can't but it wasn't called call it a hit. A hit. Yeah. It was it was mild a mild change in the dog's behavior. And it could have been, according to Deb, it could have been a number of things that changed his behavior. What the dog did not do was sit down. So I just mm. want to clear that up. It is true that some of the boots on the ground people were concerned about the payment for Deb. I'm not going to say what the payment was. Well, I mean, the post is here, right? I don't want to. I don't want to well, disclose the, what. Well, you don't have it's to. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's but, wrong. Yeah, yeah. So, but but there are details that are true. I'm really confused. This is a post. Where? What is this? It's on Facebook. Um, and and you know, it's we just are addressing general speculation out there that. Uh, you know, p- people wrote on Facebook and is being circulated throughout the community. And Wait, so this we is some random in internet bud. person who was, like, spying on you guys? Well, we have no idea what the situation is, but we, we're just trying to nip the inaccuracies in the bud right here. Right. So we're not going to put the person's name out there, um, but if you're in the group, you probably know who it is or whatnot. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say this if they didn't bring Chuck West into it and if they didn't bring in the, uh, the GoFundMe money. So a couple of the members of the Boots on the Ground uh, group were concerned about the payment for Deb. We're not going to say how much she charges, but it was a very reasonable amount. And they they had spoken to us about it, and we said, well, we, we knew that this was going to cost money, so we brought money up here to pay Deb. You shouldn't be taking it out of your own pocket if we've started this GoFundMe. And that's what it's for. That's what it's for. And the general consensus, the overall consensus, was after we did the GPR, people said, let's get the dogs in there now. So that's, yeah. that's what we did. And it, it that is what that money is for. So, yes, there was uh, cash that was given to Deb. It is not the amount that is in this. What's weird about it is that they actually specify how I delivered the money. I reached into my car and I had it in an envelope and that's how I delivered the money. It's weird that that part's right, but the amount is wrong. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, Wait, so, this is hilarious. This like, random person is just like making half making like what who is this person this is so ridiculous i mean yeah yeah i think just the point is just to correct the inaccuracies and we want to be very clear that chuck west was not there with us and i mean i'll say that there were there were some comments just thanking us for doing it 
yeah. you know, and kind of identifying that this person's sort of making nothing out of, yeah. sort of making a lot out of nothing. Yeah, I don't get the spitefulness uh, in in it, but <laughs> I may, maybe I read it wrong. I don't know. Yeah. Well, they asked a question. They said uh, after identifying that it was me that went to the car to pay for it. Uh, yes, I did go to my car and and gave cash to uh, the dog handler for it. But what does it matter? You're paying a dog handler yeah. for this thing that you're doing because you want to be doing this. Like, where does this person's point? Like, they uh, clearly just have an obsession with you and Tim. Like, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Take a number, man. Seriously. <laughs> uh, but they, he did ask the question, where did those funds come from? Those funds okay. came from the GoFundMe that people have di- directed us to get the dogs and, and use that funds for. Right. So. And that was probably the whole point of, of the thing is where is this money? What's going on with this money? And uh, I don't think and like uh, the money is sitting in the account. Like I don't think there's been much used. There's been some paid to Deb. There was some to rent the Airbnb. Uh, but I mean, there's not much else that's it's been spent on so far. Some oh. of the testing, everything else we've talked about on the podcast. Yeah, already. yeah, general expenses to get up there, uh-huh. the 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 accommodations, the dogs, the testing, uh, incidentals like you know crowbars and stuff like that. But yeah. I mean, it's it's being used. It's being used for exactly what we said it was being used for. So, yeah, there you go. Where did those funds come from? There you go. Came from the GoFundMe money, which came from the community of hundreds of people who donated. The incredible community who has donated. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.